Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Gio and Joey show. Here we are with episode number two. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episode number one, you're free to find it on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play. Joey, welcome back, brother. How you doing? Doing very well. Excited hey, to get into this topic. What we're going to do today, even though we promised in episode one that this is not going to be a Bible thumping podcast, we do have to address why that is, and we are going to address it from Scripture. And not only are we going to address it from Scripture, though, Joey has a passion for C.S. Lewis, uh, Christian apologetics, and he's going to talk to us about a book that addresses this called the abolition of man joey before we dive into the first quote give us the reason why you want to use this book and why it's profound to the topic today i think most of us know that c.s lewis is kind of the premier christian public intellectual of the last century certainly he's got writing that covers so many topics but i think one issue that he really hammers in the abolition of man goes to what we're trying to do with this podcast where we talk about kind of the two kingdoms, right? There's God's government and there's his authority. And that's what we're ultimately subject to. But there's a different government and the earthly governments and they have a different realm of authority that God grants them. And so I think he really captures that well in the abolition of man. Yeah, and it's something we're going to hit from the Bible perspective later on in this podcast. But for now, let's open up with that first quote that you wanted to share with the audience. We'll put it here up on the screen. C.S. Lewis says, The Chinese also speak of a great thing, the greatest thing called the Tao. It is the reality beyond all predicates, the abyss that was before the Creator Himself. It is nature. It is the way the road it is the way in which the universe goes on the way in which things everlastingly emerge styly and tranquilly into space and time it is also the way which every man should tread in imitation of that cosmic and supercosmic progression conforming all activities to that great exemplar in ritual says the analex it is harmony with nature that is prized the ancient Jews likewise praised the law as being true. This conception in all its forms, Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoic, Christian, and Oriental alike, I shall henceforth refer to for brevity simply as the Tao. For those who may not be familiar with the abolition of man, break that quote down and exactly what C.S. Lewis is getting at. Basically what he's trying to say is that there are things, there's a certain moral code, and some of the other quotes we have will flesh this out a little bit, but there's a certain moral code that is universal to the human condition, right? So in other words, whether you're born in China, whether you're born in India, Africa, Europe, America, it doesn't matter. There's a certain things, there's certain objective truths that are so plain that all societies have kind of adopted these, and that if we apply reason and we're good-willed, we can see the logic behind them. And we can say that these things really are true rather than kind of the modern progressive subjectivism where your truth may not be my truth and whatnot. So that's what C.S. Lewis is arguing against. We see that from even an early age where little kids argue that's not fair, where they're appealing to a higher authority. Many people may not believe that to be God or may not believe in religion, but the fact that they're appealing to a higher sense of what is fair lets them understand that there is something that governs all of us. And we'll get into that here in a bit. Anything else upon that particular quote that you want to elaborate? 
no, I think it'll be fleshed out when we get to some of the, some of the other quotes. Continuing on, it says, but what is common to them all is something we cannot neglect. It is the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are really true and others really false, to the kind of thing the is and the kind of things we are. And so again, he's just kind of saying that in who we are as humans, these things are intrinsic, just what we we're talking about. And we can go on to the next one. And all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation. We continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and build the geldings be fruitful. And the reason why I included this quote by Lewis is because I think what we do in our modern society with progressivism and kind of the social liberalism is we, that's kind of just pervades our culture, everywhere from Hollywood to the education system, is we deny the reality of the Tao. We deny, you know, what you're going to get to in Romans with natural law. We deny these things. We deny human nature, right? We've got utopian, you know, I know communism in the last century, but Nazism as well. There's these kind of utopianism schemes that deny the reality of human nature, right? So for Hitler, he could say, humans aren't necessarily bad, right? It's all these groups of people. And if we could get rid of them, we could perfect this other race. Or Stalin and the communists and Marx, right? They said, humans are innately good, but it's systems that are holding us back. So in other words, when we deny human nature, we deny the Tao, we deny a right conception of the common good. When we deny that, it leads to chaos. And then no one knows how to act, but yet we still demand, you got to act right. I think of one example some of these me too situations where in our society we've boiled down like sexual virtue to one virtue consent which of course is essential but when that's the only virtue that doesn't give any guidance of how do we actually act right in christianity there's lots of virtues there's chivalry there's leadership there's respect there's caring for the other person's feelings right but we take all that away but yet we still tell men oh hey but don't be a pig well, it's like, yeah, don't be a pig, but how? And I think that's what Lewis is getting at. As I was reading the book myself, it's a short book, by the way, if people are interested, it's called The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. You don't even have to buy it. If you Google it, you can find a PDF version. I like what he stated in the book and what you're elaborating on is that people want to get rid of the social norms and then act surprised when people don't behave to norms they may be used to. And so when there is no standard to appeal to, then it becomes a wild, wild west. What else captured your attention? On that point, something that Andrew Clavin of the Daily Wire said that I think is really applicable here is he was talking about in his day, it was just the accepted norm. You don't take advantage of a girl. You don't do these things. And he's like, because you're a gentleman. And he, so he's talking about these other values. But he says he feels terrible for some of these people, both guys and girls, who have been lied to by the sexual revolution that says, oh, all that stuff is old timey and whatever. No, like there's just things you do because it's right to do. I do think there's rational reasons for the institution of marriage and all these things, but it may not be exactly scientifically explainable. And so our modern society says, 
then throw it out, throw out these standards. What did he say? We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. We look at society today and the notion that everything is relative, as you stated earlier, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. But they fail to see that in making that statement, they are appealing to what they believe to be absolute truth, which is that everything is relative. The very fact that they're appealing that everything is relative makes an absolute claim, which we are arguing for, that there are things that are absolute truth that should guide all of us. I stated in our earlier podcast that even the atheist doesn't want people to murder. Even the atheist doesn't want people to steal from them. So what C.S. Lewis is getting at, folks, is that there is objective truth and it's to the benefit of society that we all seek that truth. And as we're seeking that truth, it makes society better because the opposite makes society chaos. I think that's a really good point about objective value. And I'm really interested as we take this conversation into Romans 13 and how the ideas that Lewis is flushing out in the book I know C.S. Lewis is familiar with Romans, and I see that thread running through. But before we go into Romans, there's something in the book, Abolition of Man, that, that I enjoyed, basically, and I want the audience to know about it, is that words have meaning. They may describe feelings, but something that describes a feeling can be tied to objective reality. And what he argues about the book and what we begin to see in society today is that people are trying to separate words from their meanings or trying to redefine words to mean something that is not concrete. One of the examples I like to use is the notion of being an anti-vaxxer. Well, my wife and I are vaccinated. My wife and I have three smart girls, growing girls, and they've been vaccinated. But because we did not want the COVID vaccine, now we become labeled as anti-vaxxer. That's not our reality because if you take the word itself, it would mean that I am against all vaccines, anti-vaxxer. But they're trying to manipulate words into a reality that is not based on truth. And that's oh. what is amazing that Suez Lewis brought out even a long time ago. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. I did get that. And that actually brings up, I don't know if um, the audience is familiar with Steven Pinker, but he's a secular, he's an atheist, he's a cognitive psychologist, I believe at Harvard, I could be wrong, but one of the Ivy League schools. He writes, in one of his books, he writes that uh, there's something called the euphemism treadmill. And basically what this is, society gets uncomfortable with a term. They say the term's problematic, say, so they'll change the term, right? So in other words, we don't want to call transgender people, or we don't want to offend people who have gender dysphoria, so and transsexuals is offensive so we're going to call them transgender or we don't want to offend uh, people who are overweight so we'll say weight challenged so we say these euphemisms and i can't think of a better example right now but i know there are some but uh, we'll say these euphemisms for things as a way to get around the offensive thing but the meaning of the thing still exists right and the meaning of the thing is what people are reacting to negatively, right? You can say, you know, you weight challenged all you want, but ultimately that's going to come to mean the same thing as fat or obese or whatever, because ultimately it's still a negative thing. It's not the word that's negative. And I think that kind of ties in there. Yeah. And I think one of the earlier ones before we used to call 
older people like grandmas and grandpas out of respect the elderly and it was a positive connotation but people then began becoming offensive of it and now they changed it from the elderly the elders even scripture talks about the elders to their senior citizens it's no longer a used car it's a pre-owned car it still means the same thing and people are yeah. easily offended by words when they should look at reality not be offended by words it's a used car what's a big deal used car and pre-owned car mean the same thing people try to manipulate words and if you manipulate words you can manipulate society that's kind of what orwell wrote about in 1984 that what big brother did they mm -hmm. manipulated words and then they changed history we were never at war with east asia we're always at war with east you know what i mean so it's like mm -hmm. that's just been a feature of totalitarian regimes control the vocabulary and that's why in today's society you see so many people get offended by the use of words it becomes that speech is now what what did they say speech is now violence violence has always meant something physical it never applied to speech and so we as conservatives we as people who objectively seek for truth whether it cuts through our own hearts or not we have to not concede to these changes of words male and female man and woman these are realities that have based a society forever and ever anything else before we jump into romans joey no, I think we kind of, we hit that well. That was good. Before we jump into Romans, let me set this up. So in the Bible, there's this concept. And like I said, we don't want to make this a Bible thumping show, even though we are Protestant and we will appeal to scripture every once in a while. We want to lay the groundwork for future episodes. We believe in God. We believe that God is the ultimate authority. We believe that God is the ultimate virtue for morality, that his ways are the best. However, Joey and I are aware that we live in a society where if you're an atheist, if you don't agree with the Bible, Joey and I cannot appeal to scripture as a basis for authority because you, the atheist, you, the secular person does not believe in it. So how do Joey and I interact in society? Well, the Bible teaches us principles to act in society which to fight for what we believe in without appealing to scripture because it's common to all of us. And the first verse, Joey, I want to jump into is in Romans chapter 2, actually, before we get to Romans 13. And this is what it says. It says, for when the Gentiles in scripture, there's two main groups, Jews and Gentiles. For when Gentiles who do not have the law of God, presumably for those who don't understand scripture, do instinctively the things of the law these not having the law are law into themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them in other words what it, this is saying is that it's appealing to the universal like we said in the abolition of man the Tao, where it's common to all of us and for us for Joey and I, well, those are found in the last six commandments. And we'll get to those. I'll expose upon those here in a bit. But Joey, based on Romans 2.14, any thoughts you'd like to share? The first thing that comes to my mind, actually, is a story from the Gospels. Don't have the exact text on me, but you know the story about the centurion 
who interacts with Jesus, he takes on faith, right, that Jesus can heal him. And Jesus makes the comment that I have not found faith like this in Israel, right, even among mm-hmm. God's people. And there's a writer I really like, an 18th century writer, who makes a comment that's like, there's going to be people who never heard the name of Jesus, right? Never heard the name of Jesus, but God, but they follow their conscience, right? And I think what really appeals universally to the conscience is what you're saying, the last six commandments about how we treat each other. And if they're following that to the best of their ability, that is faith. And Jesus considers that faith. And so I think that from a Christian perspective, it's good to remember that like, there are people who don't share our moral conviction, who don't share, I don't want to say our moral convictions, don't share all of our moral priors. The Holy Spirit hasn't, wherever they are on their walk, they're either outside the church or whatever, but they're following what they know to be true and what's been convicted on their hearts to be true. And so I think in society, right, if we can recognize those universals, we can get along much better. I've met a lot of atheists that are very moral people, people who may even show better morality than even some professed Christians. And in the book, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there is this scandal, this sexual scandal going on where a Christian is sleeping with his stepmother. In other words, he won her away from his own father. He seduced his stepmother and he's parading her around the church. And Paul says, what are you guys nuts? That's not grace. Get rid of this guy. And I like what he says. He appeals. He says, man, this guy's doing something that not even the Gentiles would do because he recognizes there is a universal right and wrong that even the Gentiles find that abhorrent. And so Paul understands that there is a general principle that guides us all. And that brings us to Romans chapter 13. And let me give you the backdrop before I read the verse. Romans 13, according to Christianity, God sets government in authority. All authority is set before God. In other words, in the last days in judgment time, they will all be accountable to God. However, God gives them a sphere in which to govern. And these verses here in Romans 13, 8 and 9 will bring us to the Ten Commandments. But I want you to see what it says. Paul says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And that's what Joey and I owe the atheist the LGBTQ, the homosexual, the abortionist, we are to love them. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now, for those of you who may be familiar with the commandments, look at the commandments Paul quotes. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And then he adds, if there is any other commandment, It is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, to the astute Bible student, they will recognize that here we have listed one, two, three, four of the last six commandments. So here are the 10 commandments there. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. And you shall not covet. Joey, can the atheists live by these six commandments? Not only can they, million, millions of them do. Okay, elaborate um, and, on that. Go and, through each um, one. 
I'll, t- I'll take one example here to start with, right? Mm-hmm. You should not commit adultery. You don't have to be a Christian to know that adultery ruins relationships, right? That adultery harms children, right? That adultery, um, and obviously with adultery, right? And we can flesh this out a little bit more, right? But marriage in the Christian tradition and in other religious traditions, but also even I think from a secular point this can be made right that marriage between a man and a woman is the only foundation that can create children right so anything that outside of that would fall under adultery right whether it's premarital heterosexual activity whether it's homosexual activity whether it's pornography lots of things fall under this but all of those things we don't have to go to scripture to say hey this is wrong this is disordered this is going to lead to problems i don't need to appeal to scripture for any of those things you shall not murder. We can all agree you shall not murder. Obviously, we have a disagreement in our society. Um, we don't recognize all life, right, the unborn. And in previous times, we didn't recognize um, the life of, like, our African-American brothers and sisters. And there have been people that have been excluded. We all recognize, and thankfully, we've grown to recognize in terms of race that none of us deserve being murdered. But I don't think anybody would say that as we move to that, we became a theocracy by outlawing slavery or by insisting on equal rights for our African-American brothers and sisters. We didn't become a theocracy, right? Because we can all recognize that it's not right to treat other people that way. Same with honoring your father and your mother. This goes into the whole conversation happening right now about parental rights. Who has charge over children, the state or the parents? And obviously there are extreme examples of abuse but generally speaking, in the vast majority of circumstances, the default is the parents, the rights to, and the charge over their children. Obviously, that comes with responsibility as well. We shall not lie. We have contract law, right? That would appeal to this. And you shall not covet. Well, we don't actually have laws. Obviously, we can't police thought crimes. But we can see how coveting leads to stealing, which is one of the other commandments. Yeah, and not only that, though, even though we don't have thought crimes, we see if you look at coveting, like, let's say, jealousy, uh, that a man sees a woman with another man, and it at times has led to murder. And I live here in the Houston area, and there was a big famous case of a NASA astronaut who drove several hundred miles to the house of the girlfriend of one of the other astronauts that she was after ended up either hurting her or killing her and we see thought leads to what actions and actions form character and so here we see people that even though these are to joey and i what we call part of the ten commandments the last six These have to do with our relationship with each other. And as Joey pointed out, the atheist can live by all six of these because he doesn't want people disrespecting his parents. He doesn't want people murdering. He doesn't want people committing adultery. He doesn't want people to steal or lie to him or to covet to the point of trying to then steal or lie about things. And so... When Joey and I, in future episodes, begin to tackle on cultural issues or social issues or political issues, we're going to base our arguments on whether these last six commandments are being adhered to. Because if everybody followed this last six commandments, we would all be a better society. And if the atheists can agree on it and other religions can agree on it, 
the Muslim, the Jew, the Hindu. If all of them could agree, we see that these laws are not necessarily God-given, even though we believe they are, that God has put them in the conscience and in the hearts of everybody. And it is on that basis, without appealing to Scripture, that we're going to be making our arguments going forward. But you may ask, what about the first four commandments? And this is where we make the distinction. Joey, let the audience know why we don't allow the government to dictate the first four commandments and why we're not going to argue in future episodes based on the first four commandments. We're going to get to a quote by one of our lawmakers where I think this distinction becomes important. So the first four commandments, if you look at them, right, there's you shall have no other gods before me, no graven images, you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do not yeah. take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so we take, we see these things, and what do these have to do with? These have to do with our relationship with God. And First John says very poignantly, God is love. Well, what do we call forced love? We have a dirty word for it, right? And it's rape, right? Mm-hmm. So in words, when you, when you force love, when you force a relationship, that's a dirty thing. That's, a, that's not love, actually. So in other words, in order for it to be love, it has to be freely chosen. So when we're dealing with these first four commandments, which I do think are binding, but I think your life will be better. As a mm-hmm. Christian, I think you're morally obliged to follow these. But the reason why we can't force that, and it is outside of the realm of secular government, is because... It deals with a person's personal relationship with God. So in other words, the conversation that conservatives were having and the case we were making during COVID and with the vax mandates and stuff is that it assaulted our conscience, right? And I know there was many who made the case, right, that because of research, right, there were some who just believed if this could be harmful, but they don't know if it's harmful. They believe their bodies are the temple of God, and so they didn't want to risk it with their bodies. I 100% agree with that cause, right? That we should have the freedom of choice in these situations when it comes to our relationship with God. And so that's why um, I would never argue. And in fact, I would argue harshly against anyone who would try to enforce these uh, conscience principles of our relationship with God. And that's where we, Joey and I, for the audience to know we're big proponents of religious liberty we do not want to set up a theocracy here in the united states we do not want to dictate to the world what we believe in now we will preach what we believe in we will try to persuade people but everybody has to make that choice freely everybody has to be persuaded not forced because when you try to use force when the government tries to use force And we have seen it in history. If you look at what some religious scholars call the Dark Ages, where the medieval church was killing other Christians. You know, we talk about the Holocaust, which is gruesome and horrible, and it's happened in a shorter time period. But during the Dark Ages, the medieval church killed upwards to 50 to 60 million other Christians who did not believe the way they believe. And so we are big proponents of religious liberty. And there is a great example in the Bible where three Jewish boys were ordered to worship an image, thereby breaking the second commandment. Joey, for the audience, let them know what that story is about. For those who aren't familiar with the book of Daniel, Daniel had three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in Daniel... One of the stories that happens here is the king, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, 
he, uh, he had a dream that's outlined in Daniel chapter two, where he sees a statue and it's got all these different metals. And uh, these different metals represent different kingdoms and he's the head of gold, right? And this represented that his kingdom was this most powerful kingdom in the world. But these other colors that came beneath, they represented other kingdoms that would come. And he wanted his power to last forever. So he didn't like this. He didn't like this dream. So what he ended up doing is he instituted a statue. He had a statue made that's all gold. He said, I'm going to be the leader and I'm going to be the leader forever. And then after he made it, he said, everyone in my kingdom must bow down and worship this statue of me. And there was many Jewish captives that he had taken from Jerusalem. And obviously they believe in the God of heaven. And they can't worship another God. But many of them did, as we'll see. Three of them, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, decided to stand firm. And I'll let Gio take the story from there. They decided to stand firm because government cannot dictate who you worship. And Joey and I will never advocate that you must worship the way we do. My favorite line in Daniel chapter 3 is when they say, we will not bow down to you even if God does not save us. In other words, they weren't presumptuous to think that God was going to save them. They realized that God could decide to save them or not to say, decide to save them. Regardless, they were going to stay faithful to God. And so when any government decides to violate your relationship with God, then they become outside of the realm of God. And we as humans can disobey them. You see in the picture representing that story, three were thrown in the furnace, but there were four. The fourth one was Jesus Christ himself walking in their midst. And the story goes that they were not harmed at all and that they were faithful and saved by God, proving to the king that we must worship God through the dictates of our own conscience. And so when the government tries to force worship, Joey and I will be on the side of religious freedom. And the reason we bring this up is because we want to show you a scary video and remind me her name, Joey, and who uh, she is. Congress, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of uh, Colorado's third district, I believe. Congress, I'm sure most of our viewers will probably have seen her. Listen to this video and then we'll comment on what's wrong with this video. The reason we had so many overreaching regulations in our nation is because the church complied. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. Joey, tell the audience what's so scary about that. Well, first, I want to acknowledge that there's truth mixed with error here. First of all, it is true that the phrase separation of church and state does not exist in the Constitution. The letter that she refers to is Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers, the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence, <laughs> wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptists. And I believe the letter he was writing, right, and what she says about the church or the state not being allowed to direct the church is true. And that's what uh, Jefferson was referring to to the Baptists. He said that the state is not going to have authority over you guys. 
And by the way, Thomas Jefferson was not a Baptist, but he's saying he's exercising a principle of religious freedom. And I think it's worth noting that the First Amendment does say there's two clauses. There's the Establishment Clause and there's the Free Exercise Clause when it comes to the freedom of religion. And so what it says, the Establishment Clause says that the United States government is not allowed or permitted to establish a church, right? So when she says that the phrase isn't in there, the concept very much is there. I'm going to stick with the Constitution over Ms. Borbert here. But the other thing I wanted to say to the point that she's making about the church directing the, go- the government, like, no, the church, listen, as citizens, as Christian citizens, just like our atheist citizens, we direct the government. We're a government, we're a self-governing republic. So in some way, I think it's a good distinction to lay here. So people like Lauren Boebert have started using the term for themselves, Christian nationalist. And that's a phrase I'm sure our viewers have heard. It's kind of the hot topic right now. And Listen, my whole life, I'm not, I'm not that old, but my whole life I've grown up in the conservative <laughs> movement. And there's something we've always talked about is Judeo-Christian principles and our Judeo-Christian roots of our civilization. I wholeheartedly believe in those principles. I believe that this country was founded as a Protestant nation. That's where this concept of church and state comes from, actually. But when she says the church should direct it, what our Protestant forebears were fleeing was situations where the church directed the government and particular instantiations of the church persecuted other instantiations of the church. I remember when uh, Lauren came on the scene, I actually applauded her, right? Because she did take a stand for the Constitution when she was running. I remember she, Beto O'Rourke, was a candidate for the Democratic nominee for president. And she ended up confronting him and she like had a gun on her hip. And she said, because he had made a comment that, you know, hell yeah, we're going to take your AR-15s, was his exact quote. And she made a comment, like, no, no, you're not. And she made a comment that that's not your right as a person of government to violate our constitutional rights. So I appreciated that. But I think she needs an education in that document, because what she says here is very dangerous. As I'm watching that video, because to be clear to the audience, Joey and I, even though we're Christians, even though we believe in God and we believe that following God is best for society, it has to be freely chosen. You have to be persuaded to follow God. What caught my attention from that video, the first question I asked, which church? Is it the Baptist church? Well, Baptists believe different than Catholics. Is it the Catholic church? Is it the Mormon church? Jehovah's Witness church? Which church is gonna direct the state? That's a no-go with so many different denominations that is no bueno. And we see in scripture plenty of examples when people try to force worship, it never goes well. In matter of fact, in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation chapter 13, there is going to be a movement to try to force worship. And that precipitates the second coming of Christ. So force worship is never good. People need to follow the dictates of their own conscience. And so that was number one for me. The second thing that alarmed me was that particular church. I don't know what church it was, but they were applauding and clapping for that statement of hers. And I'm thinking to myself, these people vote. These people vote. Are they going to vote? to establish a church and leads me back to my first question, which church I do not believe in what she said. 
We need to keep the government free from religion, but freedom of religion doesn't mean freedom from religion. My religious upbringing influences how I vote. But when it comes to dictating whether you should attend church at the cost of public jailing or public humiliation, that will never happen. You are free to worship God or not worship God. And when we see Christian nationalism on the rise, part of the episodes we'll be doing in the future is combating that, but in a way that balances how I love my neighbor while staying faithful to God. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes absolute sense. So the term Christian nationalism, when I first started seeing it was after the January 6th riot at the Capitol. And I started seeing it applied by people from the left, started calling just kind of normal conservatives or anyone who happened to vote for the last president, right? Some 74 million Americans as Christian nationalists for just having normal conservative things. And then a certain subset decided to take on the name for themselves. I think of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert. In the Christian world, there's a famous book that went out, The Case for Christian Nationalism. And so they started kind of taking this name for themselves. That's why I think it's very important, normal Christians, not to let the left or let the other side define the terms, because then you can get into some places where you may not have expected to be. Right? I don't think most Christians want to oppress their Muslim neighbors or their atheist neighbors or their classmates. But these ideas, if we don't know the roots of them, can sound good. They could sound good, right? But if we don't think of the history, if we don't think of all the fruits that were given to us by the Protestant Reformation and the history of the United States, listen, I consider myself to be a patriot. I love this country. But I don't, mm-hmm. I don't love this country because, you know, specifically a Christian nation, but because I believe the ideas that infused its founding were Christian ideas, were Judeo-Christian ideas. The idea that we're made in the image of God and we have these rights. The idea that we have the right to religious freedom, I believe that because we're created in the image of God. I'm not saying that my Christian values, and I know you're not saying this either, that our Christian values don't affect our politics don't affect our governing system. It's actually the very reason why we believe that our atheist brothers and sisters and our Muslim brothers and sisters and our Jewish brothers and sisters have the right to their religious freedom as well. It's because I'm a Christian that I believe that. I like how you put it because that's what makes us the greatest nation in the world. And in history, no one has had this type of government give so many different types of people the freedoms they enjoy here. Because if you were in Rome and you were a Roman citizen, well, you had all the freedoms you wanted. But if you were a Jew or a conquering tribe, you didn't have any freedoms. Not like the Roman citizen. Here in the United States, we took a collection of people from all around the world and gave them not only freedom to pursue life, liberty, and happiness, but we also gave them the freedom to worship their God under the same government, under the United States government, because as you said, the constitution says we have inalienable rights. And unfortunately, this country hasn't always followed those, but here in this century we are. And the ideal that the constitution espouses and the founding fathers espouse is good for everybody. However, as we see in society today, people want to 
rewrite history or condemn people for their thoughts in the past. And so going forward, we're going to tackle some of those conversations. Joey, give us a little summary of what we talked today, and then I will give the audience a little prelude of what is coming in the next episode. I think the basic point that I took away from our conversation today is that we're trying to give our, our other conservatives, other Christians, a good blueprint for, as Protestants, what should be our realm of political action and what should be left to conscience. We're differentiating with the two tablets. What this practically means is when we're voting, when we're, um, you know, protesting for certain issues, what should be the principles that should guide that action? So in other words, uh, I really believe in advocating for pro-life. I know you do as well, right? And why is that not an infringement? So a lot of people will say, oh, well, you're just forcing your religious views. Well, no, I, I don't believe you should murder people. That's part of the second tablet. So I think what we really want to get across is that there's a realm of action for political things, right? God did establish the government and the rulers. So there's a realm of that, but there's a realm above that, that that realm does not have the right to interfere on. Yes. When it comes to cultural, social, and political issues that affect all of us, Joey and I are going to make those arguments based on reason, logic, persuasion, not an appeal to scripture, even though we believe that the love we want to share with the world is grounded in the love of God. When we are arguing with you or when we are discussing with you, we're never going to appeal to scripture because we believe that there is inherent, reasonable, persuasive logic in the natural laws that we see in society. And as a preview of what's coming next, we are going to discuss the paper Sex and Culture where it talks about how the degradation of marriage has brought upon nations, not only this current nation, but nations in the past. It was a study how the degradation of the nuclear family has destroyed society and what happens to society when that degradation takes place. Until next time, if you can subscribe, give us a thumbs up or Hit the bell notification so you can follow us. We are also on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play, and anywhere else you can find your podcast. Until next time, be blessed. Keep up the good fight. And remember your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Joey, thank you very much, brother. (laughs) 